I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. The drive-in theater is now a state of mind, trapped in the ozone of the past. It's more a genre than a physical entity these days. We are a far cry from the heyday of open-air, big-sky poetry of watching movies from your car under a blanket of stars. Now, to quote this week's guest, it's all indoor bull stuff. The sensibility of the drive-in is still there, and it is a kissing cousin of the also-late-and-lamented grindhouse. Tawdry films were on display there, disreputable stuff that wasn't allowed to sully the movie palaces in the polite parts of town. The drive-in was where you went to see something you couldn't see on television or at the Bijou. It was where you took a date to make out in some semblance of privacy, but it was also a place where filmmakers with more ideas than dollars could sell their wares and find screens for their celluloid children. The drive-in was very much a part of my youth. In fact, I remember clearly being in the back of our family's 1957 Chevy station wagon to see Psycho and the impact that it had. My two brothers and my sister, as well as my parents who dispensed homemade popcorn from the front seat, were taken in shock by the unexpected dispensed before us. A family of six could go to the movies for the price of a single ticket in the downtown cinema, and you could even sneak in a couple extra teenagers in the trunk. When the drive-in theater began in its fully realized form in New Jersey in 1933, no one had expected it to become a passion pit or to be the screens that gave rise to the AIPs and New World Cinemas of the world, let alone the only place you could see movies, surely not films, by Ray Dennis Steckler, Herschel Gordon Lewis, and the seedier side of life on the big screen. Now the drive-in lives on in a streaming world where hundreds of cinematic troublemakers offer their dark visions if you can plow through the thousands of movies on demand, there are forbidden treasures to be found. Since the early 80s, the greatest navigator of those murky celluloid waters has been Joe Bob Briggs, the exalted drive-in movie critic from Grapevine, Texas. We'll meet Joe Bob and John Bloom, the man beneath the 10-gallon hat who created him, right after this. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts, literally, to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. So, John, we first met in 1993. We had talked before that, but we met when you had a part in The Stand, with the memorable line, those summer colds are the worst, being the one that uh, most harkens to my mind. So Right. I, I, <laughs> that, is, that is a long time ago. I think I had three scenes, one of which was, one of which was cut out. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I did, I did the, uh, the uh, plague makeup. Yes, when you were uh, covered in the uh, Billy Corso, Steve Johnson makeup. Yeah, but... Um, uh, but my dead body scene was cut out of the movie, so uh, <laughs> it was too harrowing, I think, for America to see Joe Bob <laughs> completely uh, covered in grotesque death makeup. But that 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 was a lot of fun. I'd never been to Provo, Utah. Isn't that where we were? <laughs> it, it was indeed. We we shot everywhere in Utah as well as uh, five other states. Yeah, for that. Um, but yeah, uh, actually. I, I guess I'm not surprised that you would remember that line, but but fans do come up to me and and quote that line. Is that right? You know, and 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 and, and uh, try to get my uh, 
my approval for the way they say it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, at that time, the reason I thought of you was the character in the script and in the book was actually named Joe Bob. And I I was a huge fan. You know, I never quite figured that out, to tell you the truth. I had met Stephen King. He came to the first um, uh, World Drive-In Movie Festival uh, that we had in Dallas. Uh, he was our guest of honor. He stood on top of the uh, concession stand at the uh, Gemini drive-in and administered the drive-in oath. One of the great moments in drive-in history. I yeah. Think. Um, and uh, the same concession stand, by the way, where uh, John Wayne had stood on top of that concession stand. Oh, my God. Uh, for the premiere of uh, True Grit. So, wow. um and uh, while, while we're on the subject, Raquel Welch <laughs> on top of that concession stand for one million years B.C. Wow, luminary after luminary. <laughs> yeah, so um, anyway, um, uh, so I, I, had met, I had met him, and he was, um, and he sort of, he wrote an introduction. He's a very kind man. He, he wrote an introduction for one of my books, and he was um, uh, uh, in touch off and on you know, through mostly through email, um, over the years. And, um, and I was never able to talk, even though you had a, you had some kind of black box way to talk to Stephen King on the set, right? (laughs) You were carrying around some kind of fancy, um, satellite phone in a suitcase or something (laughs) where you could call, where you could call big Steve at any moment. Right? Uh, well, there. Remember this, right? I think that there was an early cell phone, one of those kinds that you carried that Magnavox, the big, like a briefcase sort of thing. It was, it was very ultra high tech uh, CIA style, yeah. but it wasn't a constant contact with King. But he was he was around when we were shooting for about a third to a half of the shoot. Yeah. Okay. I, well, I, I was I was going to ask him, did you name that character Joe Bob before or after? You came to Dallas for the World Drive-In Movie Festival, and I, I don't know the answer to that. I don't either. The book was 1979, so 78 or 79, so I don't okay, know so when. it was yeah. before. It had to it be before. before. Yeah. Yeah. But okay, well. uh, it was an obvious thought to go to you because it took place in Texas. The character was named Joe Bob. And what I found out was that you not only were an actor, but you were an acting teacher. Do you still teach acting? Oh, I, w- I was I was not really an acting teacher. I was a student of an acting teacher. <laughs> I would occasionally direct uh, direct scenes and plays um, off off Broadway in uh, in New York. But um, but no no the the uh, I studied under one of the great acting teachers, uh, a guy named Fred Kerman, who was one of the original Meisner technique guys uh, from. One of the original guys taught by Sandy Meisner back in the old days. Right. Um, all those guys are gone now, but um, there was this direct uh, 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 connection to the group theater uh, in New York up until fairly recently. I think everybody everybody who studies acting today, they go to um, college. Mm-hmm. They don't. They, they don't have those. Uh, I mean, the, you, well, if you're in LA, you, well, you, you <laughs> or can New York. still come to New York. Yes, you can, you can. You can still come to New York and go to those um, uh, method classes, um, uh, which I would highly recommend. It's better than the Yale School of Drama, in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but uh, a little more real world. Yeah, yeah. 
yeah, people people now mostly. Well, that that was in the days when you you didn't really go to college to be an actor. Uh, you didn't want to waste your your eighteen to twenty one years, uh, <laughs> you know, when you could get those jobs, you know. So, um, but um, well, when but, yeah, you, I was I was doing that when you went to Vanderbilt. Um, you you were on a sports journalism scholarship, is that right? Yeah, it's a scholarship. It's kind of one of its kind. One of its kind is called the Grantland Rice Scholarship, mm-hmm. and every year they have a competition for high school seniors to choose the best high school sports writer in the nation. These they get these eminent sports writers who gather at the Kentucky Derby. And on Kentucky Derby weekend, they review the finalists. And then on Monday after the Kentucky Derby, they release the winner. And um, so I was all set to go to a little uh, college in Arkansas. And I got the call that I'd won the, uh, the, the award. Now, what's interesting, I don't know how many sports fans watch your, you know, listen to your podcast. but uh, Oh, uh, surely dozens. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's not much crossover between horror and sports. But... Um, but the guy who won the, the, the scholarship the year before me is a fairly famous uh, sports commentator on uh, Fox Sports named Skip Bayless. He was oh, previously okay. on uh, previously on ESPN. Was you know he's even I've heard uh, of him. <laughs> okay, kind of a controversial guy, and he was a controversial guy at Vanderbilt when I was the sports editor and he was the sports columnist, and uh, I would constantly have to uh, uh, chide him for writing a hundred inches when he was supposed to write twenty. <laughs> uh, but, <laughs> Long-winded. Uh, but anyway, there's a little. Uh, uh, um, it, it's it's the only scholarship of its kind. It's a it's like an athletic scholarship, but it's for it's for writing. It's for sports writing. Fascinating. They so, expect you to go into sports writing when you get out of out of college, but uh, most of us do not. But you uh, did for a while. I mean, you were a sp- sports journalist, were you not? For a Dallas newspaper? College. Oh, when, that when was, was before. when I was when I was in high school. I was a, I was a, a sports uh, sports writer at the Arkansas Democrat which was the crummy second paper <laughs> in Little Rock, the afternoon paper. And I would go in before school and after school. And uh, that's actually where I learned to write. I never really had any training other than, you know, you go in at six in the morning and they make you write eight stories before seven in the morning. And so that's that's how, <laughs> that that was the best training of all because it was just, Right, right, right. You don't have time to stop. You don't have time to think about it. Just right. But fact, you were the very first day that I was 13 years old, and I went in the first day of on my job. I was an apprentice copy boy, and they gave me a bunch of baseball scores to write up, and I uh, started to write them down on a yellow legal pad, and they said, "What are you doing?" I said, "I'm writing this story." And they said, "Oh, we don't have time for that." And he jams a piece of uh, uh, paper uh, in, an, in an old Underwood upright. Hmm. And he says, you type it directly on here. It's <laughs> like, really? You mean I compose it in my head while I'm typing? I, it's like it was a new concept to me. <laughs> and and uh, he says, yeah, we don't have time for that shit. Just, <laughs> just put, it, put, it, put it down like this. And so, uh, so you know, from the, from, so I had to, you know, I had to take typing. 
You know, right, <laughs> right. That was in junior high for me. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so uh, at that so, time, but how how long did you uh, intend? Was this a four year course at Vanderbilt, or uh, a year or two, or? or? Did it lead uh, to a it's degree? Just a scholarship. You can do whatever you want at Vanderbilt. Oh, I, I mean, they, they just give you the scholarship, and then you they give you a stipend in the summer, and it's sponsored by the Thoroughbred Racing Association. And so wow. you're 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 expected to go in the summer and work at the um, uh, uh, at the racetracks, which I did. I worked I worked one summer at Lexington, Kentucky, doing the breeding and foaling. You don't want to know about horse breeding. It's the most <laughs> disgusting thing in the world. And yeah, we'll stick I, with I, drive-in I, movies. Yeah, I was a stable boy. I, I, I had the most disgusting part of the job. Uh, and then in the, the other summers, I was at the three big tracks in um, New York, uh, Aqueduct, Belmont, and Saratoga. You work there in the summers, and you learn all about thoroughbred horse racing. And they hope that you'll go on and be a great thoroughbred horse racing rider. So far... <laughs> So far, since the scholarship was instituted in 1955 or something, the number of people who have gone on to be great thoroughbred racing riders is zero. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that didn't really work out. When, when did you discover your affinity for drive-in movies? Oh, well, I was just like you. Uh, I went with my parents to drive-ins. Uh, when I was growing up, my uh, my sisters and I would be in the back seat, and um, and um, uh, you know they always had a double feature, mm-hmm. and the first movie would be a kind of general interest movie, and then the second movie would be an adult movie, uh. what was considered an adult movie at the time, and so the goal of me and my sisters would be to try to stay awake. <laughs> For the adult movie. My sisters never made it, but I would occasionally make it. Now, when I say adult movie, you know, um, a, 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 a naughty Jack Lemmon comedy. Oh, okay. something <laughs> saucy like that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a wild party movie, you know, something like that. Right. Well, uh, so what, uh, what do you remember? I mean, I remember watching trailers for things like The Killer Shrews and getting so excited about it coming and then it never showing up. But somehow the, the more disreputable films that were playing were the ones that I was excited to see. And maybe it's the forbidden fruit or maybe it was just being a dark fucking kid. I don't know. Well, yeah, and it was also those uh, lurid uh, newspaper ads, which they don't yeah. really do anymore. But those remember those ads that would that would uh, uh, promote the movie. It was always kind of a bait and switch. Right. It would frequently be artwork. It wouldn't even be stills from the film. It would be kind of, uh, you know, scantily clad w- uh, women in bikinis and <laughs> and uh, monsters that were drawn into the ad. I mean, like, if you're promoting a movie, why would you use... <laughs> Artwork? Yeah, artwork instead of actual stills from the movie. Well, probably because the stills in the movie were so bad. But, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, uh, the Paul Blaisdell monsters of the, uh, of the 1950s and 60s. Yeah, I mean, um, uh, uh, th- there's, a, um, there's a, uh, a, a guy I'm sure you know, um, longtime Fangoria writer named... Um, Mike Gingold. Oh yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, recently, 
put out a book of all those ads oh. uh, called Ad Nauseum. It's really <laughs> wonderful just to just to uh, thumb through it and look at and think, oh man, why can't we do this today? Where, where, where did this where did this P.T. Barnum type showmanship go? Oh, yes. um, but but yeah, even when I first started reviewing the drive-in movies, it was still that way. The movies that I reviewed at the drive-in played only at the drive-in. Right. Um, and really, when I started, it was it was only me and um, um, uh, 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 Bill Landis in uh, New York right. um, who were reviewing these movies. He would review them in Times Square. Uh, it, it, the, those of you who don't know who, who he is, he, he edited a fanzine called Sleazoid Express. Right, right. And he was, uh, he was a, he was a flamboyant, um, uh, uh, guy, um, uh, uh, very into the kind uh, the, the subculture of Times Square, especially the gay subculture. Mm -hmm. And he would go into those theaters and review not just what the, was on the screen, but what was happening in the theater. And so I was kind of doing the same thing at the drive-ins in the Deep South, and so we got to know each other. And the only other person that was writing, the, the movies were considered trash. Right. Uh, mainstream media didn't review them at all. They were considered disposable. Even the producers uh, <laughs> considered them disposable. I mean, they... they Dave Friedman even, and guys like that, yeah. Yeah, they didn't yeah. even bother to save the prints, you know. Um, uh, to this day, you know, Aero Video or one of these companies will call up an old an old guy like that and say, hey, we want to re-release your movie, and he'll say, why? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, do you remember the first drive-in movie that could be described that way that impressed you, that, that kind of hooked you and made you, I mean, you know, there's more to this than, uh, than it seems. Yeah, um, it was probably, um, it, it was a, a weird one um, called The Grim Reaper. Mm -hmm. it, has many, it has many titles. Um, I think the title that they use now um, on IMDb is Anthropophagus. Oh, yeah. Yes. Obviously, it could not be re released in America with the title Anthropophagus. <laughs> and, so, and so they called it The Grim Reaper and had many other titles. I was never clear at the time whether it was an American movie, an Italian movie, or a Greek movie. I tried to figure it out, <laughs> and I couldn't. And that that's part of the... Um, uh, that's partly because in those days they disguised the origins of the movie because they wanted everything to be perceived as American. Right. Um, uh, they changed the those, name of the directors and all that in the credits. Oh, they yeah. would, they would change every Italian name to a to John Smith and <laughs> and and Gordon, you know, Smithson and what <laughs> and so uh, uh, and 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 even all those great uh, Italian directors that we revere today. Uh, all had fake names that they used at one time or another, and uh, they all did things like put a put a carton of um, Kellogg's cornflakes on the table right. in the scene, <laughs> so so that there would be some some connection to America, so that they could get that U.S. release because that's where the money was in the in the North American release. And um, uh, it, it's funny that you know, and then years later. Uh, when another generation discovers the films and they go over to Italy to meet these guys, 
they're just like the American exploitation directors. They're like, why? Yeah. You know, who who are you? This what, junk. What, yeah. What, what movie? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what What was the first one that um, you reviewed as Joe Bob Briggs? Um, it it was Anthropophagus. Oh, it was uh, okay. The, so the grim the grim reaper. Yeah. Right. I mean, if so, you want to say as a child, what what did I? What, right. What, what was I, what formed that connection for you? Probably, um, probably, I remember being really, really scared by uh, when I was a really young, and I don't even know what, how I was allowed to get into the movie. Hmm. Um, whatever happened to Baby Jane? Oh yeah, which I saw, which I think is in um, is is it in some widescreen format? Or yeah, something? yeah, I think Warner I, Brothers I rem- recently released it widescreen. I, I remembered it as being just overpoweringly threatening uh just yeah, yeah. Those, those those two old ladies uh <laughs> were just the scariest thing i'd ever seen uh, hag exploitation uh, yeah yeah so um not a typical not a typical horror film but um no, but, but that very probably, powerful stuff i mean that yeah, was what it, around 1964 or something like that i think so yeah, i mean 63 I, um, or 64 yeah so um, I shouldn't, my parents should not have allowed me to see it, but I, I don't know, I don't know how I got in, but, um, uh, uh, but I, I, as when I was older, uh, probably, and I did not see it at a drive-in, I saw it at a, at a walk-in theater, but when I first saw, it was a midnight show, I saw Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Oh, yeah. And if you remember the very beginning of it, where they have the crawl, they have a text crawl and they have a um, the narration uh, yeah. a, a narration by um, I'm I'm blanking on oh, the who, guy from Night Court yeah um, exactly yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, John Larroquette yes. John Larroquette yeah. does the narration and uh, they go to an old cemetery and nothing has really happened yet except there's a lot of sort of subliminal images like four frames or six frames images that are flashing uh, and and these sounds of I don't know what it is, ripped flesh, I guess it's supposed mm-hmm. to be. So there's all these subliminal sounds, and there's that text crawl, and there's that narration. And that's all you've seen. There were people walking out of the theaters. There were people walking out. Wow, they just from the introduction. Just from that, just from the fact that it's called the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and that emotional setup that Toby Hooper did, they're already walking out. And I'm thinking, Oh my God! I've never seen anything like this. Wow! So you the know? potency of it, the power of this this visceral movie, is that what kind of yeah. connected you to it? Yeah, and I think um, I think uh, Toby never really got credit for that aspect of it mm. of of all that stuff that he did alone in the editing room. Yeah. You know, yeah. all that stuff that he packed into the into the background of the movie is kind of what makes it work because um, because it's one of those movies where a lot of the stuff in it is 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 a bit goofy, yeah. and if it didn't have that um, if if it didn't have that um, um, uh, that soundtrack on it, and if and if it didn't have those um, those uh, uh, sort of secret images on it, mm-hmm. uh, it, you would you would be laughing. And there is and no just, musical score. Toby uh, right. is co-credited with creating just the soundtrack, which he was beating like trash can lids and he was just bowing things. And, and just it's a brilliant, effective, subliminal score without yeah. being musical. Yeah, I, I, I'm like, 
I'm, I, I always point out to people that in the dinner scene, mm-hmm. um, the final scene, or I guess the next to the last scene, yeah. um, you know, Grandpa keeps dropping the hammer <laughs> and they keep putting it back in his in his in his hand. Why aren't we laughing uproariously at that? Yeah. Why, 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 why isn't that hysterically funny? You know, because everything before has created such a such tension that we can't laugh at the at the at the grunt, at the meat you know, and all of that. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so yeah. So that was that was probably the most um, influential early movie that I saw. Yeah, um, that, that's nineteen seventy-four. I didn't see Night of the Living Dead until later. Oh, me so, too. Um, me too. And we're about yeah. the same age, so uh, we yeah. have the same kind so, of roots. Uh, and um, uh, I mean, I, I, you know, I just hosted a thing last week at IFC Cinema. We 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 showed the 1978 Halloween, uh, and we showed it to a very sophisticated audience of you know, hardcore shutter members, you know, ah, yes. and, and so 100% of the audience had seen the movie and I thought, what, am, what am I going to talk about? And I, <laughs> you know, I'm going to introduce this movie. What am I going to talk about? And so what I pointed out was, I think I finally figured out why it's so, be- why Halloween is so beloved yeah, and why the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Night of the Living Dead, which both came earlier, and were both equally brilliant horror films, did not really start trends, did not really develop that hardcore fan base. You Certainly know, not well in the known. mainstream like Halloween. Yeah. yeah, they were well known. And I think the reason is you could you could watch Night of the Living Dead or you could watch The Texas Chainsaw Massacre and... At that time, you might think that film was made by a madman. That film was scary in a way, not not just scary, scary as a film, but scary in that I don't know if I want to go into that part of town to watch it. I don't know if I want to go to the drive-in on a night when they're showing that. You know, I don't know if I want, you know, certainly the parents are not going to want their kids to see that. And then Halloween comes along, and even though, um, you know, John Carpenter grew up in Kentucky, uh, but he went to USC. Right, right. He went to USC with all of those. He went to USC with John Milius, okay? (laughs) So so John Milius is making movies. John Carpenter is making movies. So, and they shoot it in South Pasadena. It has that Hollywood shine. I don't care how low the budget was. It had that Hollywood shine. It's popped. It was safe. Yeah, it was safe to put it in in the multiplex. It was safe to put it in your neighborhood theater. It premiered in Kansas City. You know? <laughs> so, so, so I think the reason it, it it has the reputation that it does is that it was the first controlled terror, you know, where Hollywood had figured out how to do it right. Now, I'm sure John Carpenter would say, well, it's not a Hollywood movie. We were outside the system and whatever. Yeah. yeah, but you had all these Hollywood guys around and it was made in L.A. And, you know, it was Jamie Lee so, Curtis, the daughter of Janet yeah. Lee. And yeah, that, yeah. And so it had it. So I'm, I, all I'm saying is, you know, it's brilliantly told. I mean, a brilliant movie, brilliantly yeah. told. But uh, but it has that safe. <laughs> it has that safe look about it. Yeah, it's brutal, but polished. Yeah. 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 
Um, and it's called and, Halloween, so that also opens a door <laughs> yeah. to to a very wide audience that might not otherwise. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So it doesn't seem like an outsider movie, mm. and um, that's really uh, interesting. Yeah. So that's great. Well, uh, tell tell me about how this persona of Joe Bob Briggs came about. I'm sure a lot of people don't even realize that you are John Bloom and not Joe Bob Briggs, but the reality well, is you overlap. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, Joe Bob is an is an is an exaggerated version of myself. I've I've become Joe Bob so much that you know sometimes people call me up and they say we'd like you to write an article for us, and I say, John Bloom or Joe Bob, and they say, Who's John Bloom? <laughs> exactly. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So uh, um, no, I I uh, I was I was trying to finish a book. I, I had a true crime book called Evidence of Love. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, and you had a bit of a career as a true crime writer as well. I was an two investigative or three. reporter yeah. in, in, uh, in Dallas. And at the paper I worked for, the Times-Herald in Dallas, um, uh, they needed a film critic. And um, my friend was the entertainment editor, and I said... You know, can I be the film critic? Because I'm tired of like having to run off and do these articles all over the country because I can't finish my book. And so I like the idea of being the film critic where I can just like watch the films. And and she says, do you know you have to watch all the films? And I said, yeah, yeah, I'm up for that, you know. And so so I started watching all the films. And I said, rather than, but but I made a deal with her. I said, rather than... Uh, you know, do a separate article for every single film. I'm going to do one big article on Friday when the films come out. And I'm going to have, you know, a lot of copy on the, 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 the two best ones and then some short, short reviews appended to that on the lesser films. Okay, so this plan doesn't work out, though, because I start watching the movies and I hate all the Hollywood mainstream movies. <laughs> Indoor bull all, stuff, yeah. Yeah, and they have all this artwork that's supposed to go with the Hollywood mainstream movies, you know. Right. They don't have artwork for anthropophagus, you know. <laughs> <laughs> they don't ha- have artwork for swinging waitresses, you know. And so, uh, Damn so it. I'm realizing, and they don't have artwork for the foreign films either. Right. And so I'm, I'm like, instantly this is a problem. And I'm thinking, well, you know, why, why aren't they... Why aren't they reviewing, you know, the two kinds of films I liked were the foreign films, because I'm in Dallas, Texas. You know, there's 50,000 foreign films out there. One a week gets to Dallas. The odds are pretty good. That's going to be a good film. Right, okay. right. <laughs> uh, and, then, and then I like the ones that premiered at the drive-ins and had those lurid ads. And so I would call up the distributors. I remember calling up Lon Kerr, this guy, Motion. You ever met Lon Kerr? He ran a company called Motion Picture Marketing that was run out of an apartment in Marina Del Rey. (laughs) MPM, (laughs) yes, I remember them. And I would would call up Lon and say, uh, 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 Lon, um, I'm about to go watch Eager Beavers. (laughs) But I have a, a suspicion that that's the same movie that I saw last year. And he says, oh, yeah, let me check that. Oh, yeah, Swinging Waitresses. That's Swinging Waitresses, Eager Beavers, same movie. Yeah, we're sending it around the country again, different title. And then I would say, well, uh, and then when I call him up, say, Lon, I, I, need a, I need a still for this movie. He says, you know what? He says, uh, go over to this theater 
Uh, the guy there is Vinny. Go over there at 10 o'clock on Thursday morning. Have him run the film for you. Wherever you find something that you like, tell him stop the film, cut a frame out, <laughs> take the frame. <laughs> That's how we got stills for these uh, drive-in movies. Ah, uh, the respect and for so, cinema, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, um, uh, so the guy that... Um, uh, so anyway, I created Joe Bob in order to be a way to talk about these films in a positive way. Right. Uh, People don't realize that there is a great deal of scholarship in this. You genuinely love the movies. You genuinely know the movies and their history and how they led to one another. And it is it is incredibly positive and an embracing and a love of this kind of gutter cinema. Yeah. And 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 um, uh, the column was created called Joe Bob Goes to the Drive-In at a time when we were not supposed to review these movies <laughs> at, at, at respectable middle-class newspapers. You didn't review these movies. And so I conspired with the entertainment editor to put it in a part of the paper. Editors don't read their newspapers. The editor <laughs> of the paper never reads his own paper. Right. He reads the front page and he reads the front sports page. That's it. <laughs> and so we, we decided to put it in this Friday section that was full of discount furniture ads and it was, you know, greasy. Those ink came off on your hands mm. and we put it back on page 26 double F or something. <laughs> and we thought by the time, you know, we'll get this thing started. And by the time he notices it's in the paper, you know, it'll be well established. Well, that's exactly what happened. We, 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 we got instant um, uh, interest in it and fan mail. And, and so it kept, by the time he noticed it, we were, popular right and so um so that's how that's how i uh, got it into the paper and then the real turning point for the column one of the earliest supporters of the column uh i don't know who sent it to him was roger corman wow and so roger called me up and he said um i love your column you know i love the i forget which of his movies i'd reviewed you know um but he says you know, when you're in when you're in L.A., please come by. And so I went. At, but remember his old production studio on Venice Boulevard? Absolutely, the lumber yard, right, where all the Jim Cameron uh, stuff that yeah. Jim Cameron art directed and the like was done. Yeah. So I went to the lumber yard, and uh, I remember the very first thing happened. Roger's showing me, you know, the um, the lumber yard and the the editing suites. He had some editing suites there, and he had yeah. some. Uh, he had a he had a, a, a kind of a Star Trek spaceship yeah. set there. That'll be on the stars and all of that <laughs> yeah. at that time. Yeah, and um, and he and he's and he ha and there's all these parts of the lumberyard that are still a lumberyard, and they throw all this <laughs> junk from the old movies into a pile in the corner, and I'm looking over into the junk, you know, in the lumberyard, and I said, Roger, you threw away the mutant. <laughs> That's the mutant over there, and sure enough, you remember that. Uh, what movie am I thinking? Forbidden it was originally World. called Mutant. What, Forbidden World, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It was originally called Mutant. Mm -hmm. Changed the title to Forbidden World and said, "Roger, you cannot throw away the mutant. Somebody wants the mutant. You know, let's go get the mutant." And see, I remember it. And uh, the PR person for for New World actually went over and said, "You know, he's right, Roger. We should save this." And she goes and like literally takes it off the trash pile. And I was like, oh. so um, uh, so anyway, Roger, I do the drive-in totals at the end of every right introduction to a movie. Those are directly from Roger. 
I, really? The my, blood, my beasts, and breasts thing? Yeah, yeah my conversations with Roger, because you know how he loves to talk about theory. He loves to talk about exploitation theory. Right. Um, He's been on the show and talked about it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I would ask him questions like, um, uh, Roger, do you always need um, naked women in the movie, in any kind of movie? He says, that's a very interesting question, Bob. <laughs> Um, my feeling is that you should always have three females with breast nudity in most films. And that would, that would be a female lead who is nude in two scenes, one near the beginning of the movie, one near the end of the film, and two other women supporting actresses who are nude in one scene each. Those four scenes will make the viewer believe that he has seen a lot more than he has actually seen. <laughs> it's very professorial. Yeah. yeah, he had this down to such a science. Um, uh, he, he, he was wonderful. So the, the science of the, you know, the elements that must go into any great exploitation film came directly from conversations with Roger wow. and developed into blood, breasts, and beasts, number of dead bodies, number of number of breasts, number of... Now, interestingly, guys who are making movies today are sometimes praised, who are making sort of pseudo-exploitation movies today, are sometimes praised for restraining themselves from putting female nudity into the movie. <laughs> you know, which is what... Is this, a, is this a return to Puritanism? Is this a political correctness thing? Is this a Me Too thing? Is What is this, you know? And it's it 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 turns out that um, there is a belief in the world of millennials and post millennials that um, there's no more demand for that. Hmm. I, as a student of human nature for many years, yes. <laughs> think that's think that is probably not the case. We, <laughs> and that Roger's formula would probably still work today. I but, think it still works for him, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, I saw Roger's name on a, uh, on a movie just um, three weeks ago. It's some Chinese, Chinese language anthology, executive wow. produced by Roger Corman. Wow. Yeah, he's, he's still... Uh, He's, he's still working. He's still out there in his 90s. He's as vital as ever. He's as articulate as ever and, and just an amazing character who's still in the thick of it and the international qualities of it. He's always looked, you know, here's the Philippines was perfect for that time in the 70s and now China is the place to get the financing and all of these things. He's, he's a fascinating guy. He really is. He really is. Well, another big turning point for the Joe Bob character was... First, it was just written, but then Joe Bob came to the stage. So tell me how that character developed to actually be in front of an audience, and it was um, on stage. I was, I was constantly getting invitations to speak uh, at various places, and so finally I just, you know, put on the hat and the bolo tie and started speaking. <laughs> and uh, and uh, fortunately, I, I do have a, a southern accent, and fortunately I am from Texas. Yes. Unfortunately, um, I announced that um, that uh, actually my first performance was um, in Cleveland, uh, and um, I the reason it was in Cleveland is the guy wanted to book me in Cleveland, and um, 
I thought, well, I've never been to Cleveland. <laughs> Reason I, enough. I don't know. I don't know anybody in Cleveland. Uh, if I bomb in Cleveland, uh, how many people are going to find out? And so, <laughs> and so I went to Cleveland. Uh, I went to actually Berea, Ohio, which is uh, near the Cleveland airport, uh, to the Berea Convention Center, which is also Berea High School. Uh -huh. <laughs> and they have an auditorium there. And um, I thought that I would go in, do the show, get out, you know, and it would be good practice. You know, if you, if you do any kind of comedy or stage or anything, you should probably rehearse about 50 times before you do it. <laughs> I, I was just practicing at home and then doing it. <laughs> and so I go to Berea, Ohio, and um, um, uh, halfway through the first act, um, first of all, the thing is sold out. And the reason it was sold out was that um, it was on the front entertainment page of USA Today that day. Wow. Uh, or the day before or something. So uh, I f forget sneaking into Cleveland and sneaking out. <laughs> so, so about halfway through the first act, um, I forget my lines. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, I had all these um, country western uh, uh, parody songs that I could go to at any time. And I had a band. Wow. And so I would just say, okay, we're going to the next song. And I would sing these songs. And while we were singing the song, I would try to remember where I was in the script. <laughs> <laughs> and it was really shaky throughout. Like but I managed to get through the thing. When it was over, I didn't know how to get off the stage. And so I just kind of walked down into the audience and walked out into the lobby and said, good night. <laughs> and the audience followed me into the lobby and I did 20 more minutes in the lobby. <laughs> this is and like so, an Andy Kaufman routine. <laughs> I know. And so, and so uh, um, everybody, people have come up to me over the years and said, you know, I was there that night, you know, that you did that thing in Berea. And I was like, oh my God, you saw that? And, uh, uh, and and but so many people have told me they were there that it's far more people than could have actually been there. <laughs> but um, uh, uh, from from then on, I was like, oh my god, I'm I'm never doing this again. Oh yeah. But then of course somebody wanted to book me two two months later, and I started. Um, I in in the early days, I always worked at a club called Wolfgangs <laughs> in San Francisco uh -huh. in uh, in the North Beach area, and I was the only. Um, comedian that worked there um all of the acts were punk bands oh uh, interesting and so and you're surrounded uh, by strip clubs on the north beach at that yeah, time yeah. i would be i would be there on a wednesday night and um uh they the man they they were really kind to me it was um the guy who owned fillmore west um uh, the same guy um bill grant yeah it was his yeah. club but it was his small, it was his tiny venue, you right, know? Right, right. And so um, uh, I would work there. They were the guys that told me, um, you know, the first night that I worked there, they said, okay, we owe you $1,000 or whatever it was. Uh, how do you want it? And what they meant was, do you want it in hundreds or fifties or whatever? And I said, oh, well, uh, let me give you my address. You can mail the check. <laughs> the, guy, the, guy says, the guy says, uh Never do that. <laughs> and I said, what do you mean? <laughs> Never do that. He says, you're in the, you're working in nightclubs now. And he said, Let, and I said, I don't feel comfortable carrying a lot of cash out in the middle of the night in this neighborhood in San Francisco. He says, 
you got a garment bag? And I said, yeah. He says, let me show you how to do it. And he shows me where to put the money in the garment bag. <laughs> this is so shady. <laughs> and, and I was in that world, that kind of seedy uh, nightclub world for a while uh, until I, you know, got the job and it was not a, it was not a huge paying job, but I got the job on the movie channel. Yeah, which that, that had to be a big turning point for you because, first of all, as a journalist and doing your live comic shows, but you're, you're known as the drive-in movie critic, and that reaches a particular audience, but suddenly you're on television. And yeah, and um, um, I was um, I was actually just hired to be a guest, uh, ah. a guest, a guest host for one month of shows, four Friday nights on mm-hmm. uh, on the movie channel, and they liked it. It was just it was just the Lazy Boy recliner with the horns on the back. That was right. it. Right. It was me in the chair. No trailer yet. None camera. of that stuff yet. And <laughs> and and so they liked it enough that they said, uh, well, come back for another month. So I came back for another month and I came back for another month. I stayed there 11 years. Wow. I, I don't, I don't even think we had a contract for the first three or four years. Wow. It was just, it was just come do another show, come do another show, come do another show. And so the show just kind of developed organically. And I said, you know, from sitting in the chair, staring at the camera, it was like, Maybe we should add this. Maybe we should add that. Maybe we should have a guest. Maybe we should have a male girl. Maybe we should have, you know, uh, you know, anything that fit the world of drive-in movies. So we just kept adding things and adding things and adding things. And then finally, after 11 years, they changed format. They said, well, we'll be winding up the show. And we did a farewell show and we threw the hat into the chair and everything. I remember. And then, yeah. and then like two or three, not very long, I mean, maybe two months later, um, uh, Turner, Phil, Phil Oppenheim, um, uh, one of the head programmers at TNT yeah. calls and says, do you want to do another show? And I was like, yeah, what do you have in mind? He says, well, pretty much what you were already doing. And I said, we still have those sets. He says, really? <laughs> oh, <laughs> I said, yeah. And I said, and so. I mean, with maybe two months off the air, and then suddenly I'm back on TNT. With Monster Vision. With the same set, only well, now that's it's amazing. Monster Vision. It's, Did you have to change the name of the show because of the Turner contract? Probably not. Oh, you probably could have not. still they, called it Joe Bob Goes to the Drive. Yeah, they didn't care. But they, Monster Vision existed before me. They had, a, they had a show called Monster Vision. I was just moving in to be the permanent host. They... They had a lot of guest hosts who did Monster Vision. Mm. So I was moving in to be the permanent host of uh, Monster Vision, and I was there for five years. So I was pretty much on the the air for, I don't know, 16 solid years. And those are years of uh, 52 weeks a year, at least a double feature every week. So how many... Movies is that? I don't even know. That's 104 at least, yeah. It's going to be like... Probably when you add it all up and specials and everything, it's 2,000 movies. So I probably hosted 2,000 movies. And you had to not only watch them, but you had to talk about them and know what they were. No, and and, and on the homework. What made the movie channel so wonderful is the network really didn't care about this show. The programmers (laughs) loved the show. But the the high the high sheriffs at the network, Mm -hmm. they never watched it. They didn't really care what was on in the middle of the night. And the rule was, as long as you're finished by 6 a.m., 
We don't care what you do. That's, uh, you know, the programming day starts at 6 a.m. You can finish at 4.30. We'll finish with, you know, we'll fill in with cartoons. We'll, you know. And so uh, so we had no uh, uh, format uh, rules. I could talk as long as I wanted to talk. So it was your baby and you could do whatever you wanted. Yeah, um, unless people wrote hate mail, you know, unless I got in trouble. That's did that the happen? Only time. It did happen. Uh, one one time in particular, we had a little small um, problems, but one big one was when I made a bunch of Kathy Bates jokes Ooh. when we were showing Dolores Claiborne. Oh boy! And apparently, the Kathy Bates fan base is so uh, uh, rabid <laughs> <laughs> that they they thought I should be fired because they they. They were implying that I was advocating um, uh, 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 wife abuse. Oh, uh, you know, because of the you know the nature of the movie and right. the fact that she had been, you know, I forget the act, the wonderful actor who played the the abusive husband right, in the spaghetti right. strap T-shirt, and, uh, mm-hmm. and so and so um, they didn't realize that you and Kathy had both appeared in the stand. That's right. That's right. And so, um, uh, so uh, that got to the top, and it's like, why is he saying these, you know, anti-woman stuff oh. on the air? Is he saying this every week? You know, what is what's going on here? Mm. And you know, we had to explain ourselves, and uh, it came just short of a formal public apology. Ah, I'm opposed yeah. to formal public apologies. <laughs> <laughs> and tell me the philosophy behind that. Well, and the reason is. Um, First of all, they always sound phony. They always sound like you're just trying to protect your, you know, you're just trying to cover your ass. Right. Uh, I invite people to um, continue to talk about whatever they're mad about. We'll continue to talk about whatever you're mad about mm-hmm. until you're until you're satisfied that everything that can be said has been said. Right. I probably won't apologize unless unless I. Uh, un- unless I said something that I didn't mean to say, which I can't imagine that that's ever happened, you know, <laughs> then then I'm probably not go- going to apologize. And the reason I don't think it's a good idea to apologize, whether it's me or Coca-Cola or United Airlines <laughs> or whoever mm-hmm. it is, is that it it empowers a certain type of a little bit unbalanced people who are out there who will start another crusade about something even sillier. Mm-hmm. And so I don't think it's I don't think in 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 general terms there are some some things that are so egregious that yeah you should be you should be put in the public stocks and flogged right you right. know right. but <laughs> but but for most things that most you know companies apologize publicly for it would be better if if we if we had some other way to deal with well they shouldn't have said that you know but to make amends rather than just or, or or to say you know we have different groups of people with different perspectives in this country it's a very diverse country certain things are going to be offensive to these people that are not offensive to these people um uh, uh often what's what's happening is you're talking to a, a group of people who get the joke mm-hmm. but the protest comes from way outside it comes from way over here from people who have never seen you before they, they're not only are they not in on the joke; they're not even aware of who you are. And right. so, um, 
they, so they take something totally out of context. They say, oh, there's this guy who's doing this horrible stuff. And especially, I would say, my, my non-apology policy. <laughs> people say, well, you can't do that in this world because we're too divided. And, you know, we've got, the, we've got white supremacists out there and we've got um, uh, truly evil people out there and everything. And I'm saying, even, even more to the point, I said, we can't have this culture of gotcha, gotcha, constantly mm-hmm. looking for gotcha, ways to, ways to prove how evil you are by something you said. Right. We have to, we have to proceed from the assumption that you can say anything, and we'll keep talking about it. We'll keep talking about it. You know, now that's very unpopular on the college campuses. <laughs> they're, they're much- well, you you write about this a lot. Uh, in you have a weekly yeah. column on Takis, uh, a forum. Yeah, Takis magazine. Yeah. yeah. I work for them because they they don't really censor anybody. They're they're very open, but um, uh, and and I met Taki when he was. Uh, and many many people don't know who Taki is, but he's a he's a Greek journalist who um, is a very flamboyant guy. Just recently, he he won the senior judo championship wow in, in the u.s philosopher uh, and judo he's in, his, yeah. he's in his 70s he's a philosopher columnist journalist um he's this uh you know multifaceted guy they talkies magazine is out of london um but um uh they they sort of um uh they're into different voices, you know, uh, uh, strong voices that would possibly be censored somewhere else, right. but are not censored at, at Taki's place. Well, so. you would be familiar with that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, here's, Mick, the, the, uh, when I started, uh, if the censor came along, he would say, uh, Joe Bob, you can't say that because the older people are not going to understand where you're coming from. Mm-hmm. And today it's the same censor who comes along and says, Joe Bob, you can't say that because the younger people right. are not going <laughs> to understand where you're coming from. You know, it's like, Change. we're both baby boomers. Yep. Are we the yep. only generation, you know, that, 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 that doesn't get pissed off. It's like, we're, <laughs> we're, 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 we're the only generation that, that sort of has a, a consistent sense of humor about everything and believes that all things are permissible. Yes. Um, and uh, <laughs> other than particular actions by the White House now and then, but uh, yeah, hi. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's another uh, story altogether. Yeah, you kind of have to um, you kind of have to steer clear of uh, politics. One reason I think that we're doing well um, on Shutter, you know, my yeah, we're, I was going to get to that. Shutter. Yeah, yeah. Um, one th- reason I think we're doing well is that people have signed out of politics. Hmm. People are seeking something else to be passionate about. And one of those things is drive-in movies or exploitation movies or genre movies or whatever. Well, Shudder uh, is a subscription service that's all horror films. And recently they had a Joe Bob marathon. And it was going to be a once, uh, one-time thing. And it was a huge success, so much so that their servers went down. And people trying to watch couldn't because everybody was trying. And now you've come back for a second one and there's talk about more. Yeah, it was, uh, it was um, shocking to me because um, 
when the producer and director first came to me and said they wanted to do this, I told them, well, we can probably do it one time for nostalgia's sake, but it's a 20-year-old format. You don't do that in TV. You don't repeat in TV. And they were like, no, 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 we think this is going to work. You know, mm-hmm. well, what are we going to add to the show? Nothing. We're going to do the exact <laughs> same show. The exact same show you did on Monster Vision. Really, the exact same show. And it's like, so. Did you still have the set for that? <laughs> no, we didn't have the set. In fact, in fact, uh, we had our budget slashed and we had no money mm-hmm. to do the, to do the uh, marathon. It was supposed to be a 48 hour marathon. It was going to be a, like a Labor Day Jerry Lewis telethon kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> and um, uh, we had our budget slashed and um, uh, it was slashed so low that we couldn't. Um, couldn't we even get the chair could, with horns, yeah. Well, we didn't think we could do it at all. Uh-huh. And um, we were going to walk away, and um, uh, um, uh, the producer called me up and he said, you know, a lot of these crew members have said they'll work for free. Wow. And, uh, and some of them will work for bus fare, and some of them will work for half salary and everything. And I was like, well, i got to do it now. Mm-hmm. He says, what do you want to do? You want to do just like three or four movies? And I said, no, we can't do that. I said, it's got to be special or people are not going to tune in for it. I mean, we've got to do at least a day. We've got to do at least 24 hours. So the idea was 13 movies in 24 hours mm. on Friday the 13th. Nice. And uh, and so... Um, Did you choose the movies? Turned, uh, we, well, yes, but but with the the director, a guy named Austin Jennings, is, was a, a Monster Vision fan mm-hmm. when he was a baby. <laughs> he's very young and he uh and he remembered things about the show that i didn't remember i mean he remembered specific bits specific uh wow. things about the set specific you know he was definitely a fan and so um he would make after after the first couple of production meetings i would say austin whatever you say that's what i'm gonna do <laughs> <laughs> and so and so um, so yeah, we had, we had the shutter list. We asked for some additional titles to see if they could get those titles, mm-hmm. tried to make it a mix, um, great horror movies, uh, classic horror movies, um, so bad they're good horror movies, uh, some trash, you know, cult, yeah. cult films, uh, films that are, uh, that, are, that, to, that just have a historic value like blood feast, oh, you yeah. know? And so, um, uh, we had we had a Dave Dakota film. I said we got to have a Dave Dakota film. He's made four, he's made nine thousand films. It's like he's made more films than any other director in history. You know? so, we, so we showed other than Takashi Miike, maybe. Uh, so we showed uh, Sorority Babes and the Slimeball Bolorama as our there Dave Dakota go. film. And Linnea um, Quigley, yeah. So uh, uh, so yeah so so. Um, uh, when we announced it, the first guy who um, uh, posted about it, I think he posted on Twitter or Facebook, I can't remember which, was Stephen King. Uh-huh. He, was, he, he, he said, oh, Joe Bob's going to do a marathon on July 13th. I will not miss it. I'll be there. You know, something like that. <laughs> Full circle. So it was like, yeah. yeah, so I call uh, so I call Shutter and I say, well, what do you think? And they say, we didn't really expect this level of interest. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, okay. so on the night that it happened, I tuned in at nine o'clock when it's supposed to start because we wanted it to be appointment TV. We're going to hold back the 
we wanted people to show up and be on the social media and enjoy it all at the same time. So I start getting these texts. What's wrong with this fucking thing? Oh, no. <laughs> you know, I'll never give another dollar to this company. Oh. Who, who did this, you know? And this, and it's coming in on the email. It's coming in on the, you know, for about an hour. And then after that hour, the messages suddenly shift. And it's like, OMG, 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 OMG. Wow. Joe Bob, do you know what's happening? Do you know what's happening? No, I don't know what's happening. I know everybody's pissed off. Um, you broke the internet. Shoo-hoo. The internet. <laughs> it's, like, it's like, is that a good thing? Oh, that's a great thing. Uh, can anybody see the show? No, no, they can't see the show because you broke the internet. Well, I kind of wanted people to see the show. I kind of worked hard on, you know, it's like, no, this is great, Joe. And so these little, these little viewing pods developed of people that were sharing their anguish at not being able to see the show. And then occasionally they had these engineers working through the night and occasionally it would come back on on smart TVs. If you had a smart TV, you could watch it. Uh-huh. If you had a laptop, you couldn't watch it. Uh-huh. And it would be available on phones. And then it would be, and so they would say, I've got it. Some guy in Akron says, I've got it. And he starts uh, uh, streaming it on Twitch. Oh. All the other people that can't get it. <laughs> and then one of, the, one of the guys got banned for life from Twitch. <laughs> Because he was streaming your show? Yeah, because he was streaming the show. And we were like, we had to make an appeal on his behalf and, you know, and, and try to get him reinstated. <laughs> and um, uh, and so this uh, fan fan base developed, both of the, the old fans and some new fans that were created, you know, by this by this event. And they made the decision the next day to go ahead and post the whole thing on demand right. the following day in order to, you know, the natives were restless. Yeah, you had people. to, you had to. <laughs> and then, uh, so you've done another set, and what does the future with Shutter hold for Joe Bob and the drive-in? Well, um, uh, we're doing a Thanksgiving marathon called Dinners of Death uh-huh. on, on Thanksgiving night nice. at 9 o'clock again. Uh, hopefully we've got, hopefully we want, we won't, uh, spill a Pepsi on our Commodore 64 or whatever we <laughs> run the system on, but, but, um, uh, we, we're gonna, we're gonna, uh, have a, it's, it's a mini marathon. It's only four movies, uh-huh. but it's called dinners of death. Um, uh, it has one of my favorite movies of all time in it. They don't like me to tell the titles. Okay. I can't reveal the titles. Okay. Um, on uh, Christmas, we have a very Joe Bob Christmas mini, oh, nice. uh, mini marathon nice. on December 21st, which is the Friday before Christmas on, on Tuesday, and um, another mini marathon with four movies. And uh, that, that mini marathon is one franchise. It's oh, one franchise. okay. I can say that much about it. Okay. Uh, with, uh, with a very special and distinguished guest. Ooh. Uh, and... Uh, then uh, we're going to do in March. We're going to do uh, a week weekly double feature uh, for a while. Nice. So, so we can look uh, forward to the holidays with Joe Bob Briggs. Exactly. Yeah, that's great. Well, I I really appreciate the special distinguished guest we've had today on Postmortem. And well, thank first, you, Mick. First time we've Mick, seen each other Mick. in a while. 
you know, we we got to talk about your hair. You're the, you're, there are two guys in horror. There are two guys in horror who still have the '80s hairband hair. You know, I I the whole time I've been talking to you, I feel like I've been talking to the bassist for White Snake. You know, because and 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 that's you. And do you know Kevin Van Hintenrick? I don't. Kevin Van Hintenrick, he's the star of Basket Case. Oh, okay. Yes, of course. I know who he and is. Yes. And he's famous for the he's famous for his hairband hair. His curly hairband hair, yeah. I just saw him two or three weeks ago. He still has the same hairband hair, and so do you. But I uh, didn't for, for a long time. <laughs> well, we're gonna we're gonna start a we're gonna start a website called Hair of Horror. <laughs> and you're, you're gonna be you're gonna be the number one. Uh, you're gonna be the number one guy on culprit. That. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, it's great catching up with you, John, and and I'm thrilled about the success on Shutter and reading the Talkies magazine columns every week is always uh, really liberating and fun in a lot of ways. And uh, just I'm happy to be able to have a conversation with John Bloom so that people know that there's there's something more behind the Joe Bob persona. Okay, well, one of these days you're going to come on the show and and you're going to have a conversation with Joe Bob, and it won't be as much fun. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime. This really gig you. Anytime. I'm ready. <laughs> okay. All right. John, thanks so much. That was really great. Hey, everyone. Joe Russo here, Mixed Postmortem Producing Partner. Are you a listener in the Denver, Colorado area? Well, don't miss our guest this week, Joe Bob Briggs, live and in person at the Denver Film Festival this Saturday and Sunday, November 10th and 11th. You can find tickets at denverfilm.org. If you're enjoying Postmortem, it would be a great, great favor to us for you to rate and review and subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Uh, you can access all of my video interviews and behind-the-scenes documentaries, things like that, at mickgarrisinterviews.com. Reach us on Twitter at PostmortemMG and on Instagram on PostmortemGram. Thanks a lot for listening. Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes. <laughs>